Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to this Northland Power Conference call to discuss the 2020 third quarter results. During the presentation, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterwards, we will conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone. If at any time during the conference you need to reach an operator, please press star 0. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded Wednesday, November 11, 2020. Conducting this call for Northland Power are Mike Crawley, President and Chief Executive Officer, Pauline Alam Kandani, Chief Financial Officer, and Wasim Khalil, Senior Director of Investor Relations and Strategy. Before we begin, Northland's management has asked me to remind listeners that all figures presented are in Canadian dollars and to caution that certain information presented and responses to questions may contain forward-looking statements that include assumptions and are subject to various risks. Actual results may differ materially from management's expected or forecasted results. Please read the forward-looking statements section in yesterday's news release announcing Northland Power's results and be guided by its contents in making investment decisions or recommendations. The release is available at www. Northlandpower.com. I will now turn the call over to Mike Crawley. Please go ahead. Thank you, operator, and good morning to everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Also joining from Tokyo today on the call is David Pavel, our Executive Vice President of Development. This morning, we will review our third quarter 2020 financial and operating results and provide an update on the business. Following our remarks, we look forward to taking your questions and comments. With the final quarter of 2020 underway in what has been an extraordinary year, we are pleased with the progress we've made despite the challenges arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. Our underlying business is performing well, and even with the financial impacts experienced year-to-date from negative pricing, curtailments, and low wholesale market pricing, we are still able to deliver strong operational results. I want to start off the call by highlighting a couple of points on the quarter, and Pauline will provide a more detailed look into the financial numbers later in the call. We achieved a healthy growth in adjusted EBITDA, reporting $254 million in the quarter, or a 13% increase compared to $224 million a year ago. We recorded free cash flow per share of $0.30 in the quarter compared to $0.41 in 2019, representing a decrease of 27% year-over-year. The decrease in free cash flow was primarily attributable to scheduled principal debt repayments for Deutsche Bucht following the declaration of commercial operations at the end of March. Now, turning to our growth strategy, it has both a near-term and long-term element. Northland is amongst the top 10 global developers of offshore wind, and this is where we are prioritizing our long-term development efforts. New offshore wind markets continue to open, and long-term power purchase agreements are still generally available for offshore wind projects. These opportunities span multiple geographic locations in Asia and Europe. 
In many land-constrained countries, there's a high demand forecast for renewable energy and lots of capital eager to invest in advanced development and operating uh, stage offshore wind projects. This is, however, there is, however, relatively few companies capable of developing and building offshore wind projects that allow these countries to reach their decarbonization objectives. That is where we see opportunity for Northland. While our long-term objectives center on offshore wind, our short-term objectives look to investments in onshore renewable projects. These types of projects enhance our financial performance by providing near-term cash flow, in part to fund our long-term offshore wind development activities. In the quarter, we successfully closed the acquisition of three onshore wind farms in New York State with a combined capacity of approximately 300 megawatts. These development stage projects expand Northland's North American portfolio by providing investment opportunities into the U.S. renewable market. These acquisitions are part of Northland's long-standing strategy of early entry into projects and leveraging our substantial experience and expertise to successfully complete the development of these projects. The New York Highbridge, Bluestone, and Ball Hill projects position us to actively participate in the growing renewable market in New York State, which is expected to add an incremental 26 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030. Our plan is to grow our presence in the U.S. by leveraging the platform of New York Wind projects as a base to pursue more projects in the Northeast and in other targeted U.S. markets to establish a portfolio of onshore renewable projects with an expected capacity in excess of one gigawatt. Now, turning to our construction activities, work at La Lucha continues with all the major components of the project having been installed. Final work on the step-up and switching substations are being executed, and we are on track for project completion by end of year. As our first project to be underpinned by commercial and industrial customer offtake agreements, we are progressing to secure those agreements for La Lucha. We expect to have them in hand by the end of the year to coincide with commercial operations. At our Hailong offshore wind project in Taiwan, the team continues to make progress towards securing corporate power purchase agreements for the remaining 744 megawatt allocation that was secured under an auction process. As mentioned previously, Hailong, through our auction projects, has the opportunity to pursue PPAs with corporations, corporate load, that is, of course, uh, part of our strategic option to enhance the economic value of the project and, 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 uh, uh, and, and beyond what we would get from the utility offtake tied to our successful auction bid. We hope to say more on this in 2021. In Europe, subsequent to the end of the third quarter, Northland Power Europe, a subsidiary of Northland, signed a service agreement with Nord C1, whereby Northland Power Europe will provide turbine operations and maintenance services to the project. The contract will be effective through to 2027. Now, the advantages of Northland being able to provide these services include gaining a better fundamental understanding of the cost assumptions under, underpinning this offshore wind investment and positioning the company for cost competitiveness in a post-tariff landscape. Furthermore, with the expertise and knowledge gained through the execution of these services, Northland will be able to apply these learnings to future offshore wind developments to enhance project profitability while also ensuring a more balanced operational risk profile. Our regional development teams continue to look for additional development opportunities in other key markets. As opportunities are identified and evaluated, we will invest the appropriate capital to advance these projects and expand our development pipeline. 
Lastly, we continue to see significantly higher unscheduled transmission outage losses at North Sea 1 and Deutsche Boot in the third quarter due to grid repairs by the system operator. We expect these outages to continue into the fourth quarter, and Northland is reviewing its options to address these unscheduled outages. We will receive compensation from the grid operator for a portion of these losses. While these outages are affecting the short-term results at our facilities, we do not expect there to be an issue in the long-term once the repairs have been made by the grid operator. I will now turn the call over to Pauline for a more detailed review of our financial results. Thank you, Mike, and good morning, everyone. Last night, Northland Power released operating and financial results for the third quarter of 2020. As Mike mentioned, despite these challenges we have faced this year, our business continues to deliver solid operating results. Our offshore wind segment has generated nearly $1 billion in revenues through the first nine months of the year, which represents a new first for Northland. Coupled with strong performance from our other segments of our business, we have generated nearly $902 million in adjusted EBITDA in the first nine months of the year. For the third quarter, we generated adjusted EBITDA of approximately $254 million, which was an increase of $30 million, or a 13% increase from a year ago. The primary drivers behind the increase in adjusted EBITDA year-over-year year include a full-quarter contribution from our Deutsche Boot project and additional contributions from EBSA, which was consolidated from the closing of acquisition in January of 2020. These two assets contributed approximately $43 million in incremental adjusted EBITDA in the quarter. These results were partially offset by a $10 million decrease in operating results at our Gemini and North Sea 1 facilities in the North Sea, primarily stemming from lower wind resources during the quarter, combined with continued weakness in the wholesale market prices at Gemini and unpaid curtailments at North Sea 1 due to unscheduled grid repairs. Through the first nine months of 2020, as disclosed in our MDNA, we have experienced approximately $59 million of lower revenue as a result of unpaid curtailments due to negative pricing and grid repairs at our German wind farms and lower market pricing at Gemini. With respect to free cash flow, Northland generated approximately $61 million or $0.30 cents per share in the third quarter. This was a decrease of approximately 18% and 27% respectively compared to the third quarter of 2019. The single largest driver behind the year-over-year -year decrease in free cash flow was a $43 million or $0.21 cents per share scheduled increase in principal repayments primarily attributable to Deutsche Boot and Grand Ben. Also contributing to the decrease was the previously mentioned grid outages and other items including higher interest and tax expenses and higher development expenditures, details of which are listed in our MDNA. Our rolling four-quarter free cash flow payout ratio calculated on a cash dividend basis for the period ended September 30th of 65% compared to 61% payout ratio last year. On the development front, as we have noted previously, Northland intends to allocate a greater proportion of capital to development expenditures for its growth pipeline, including its offshore wind activities. For 2020, this is now expected to total to 35 to 45 cents of free cash flow per share of development costs and overhead. 
Thus far in 2020, development expenditures and overhead have amounted to approximately 25 cents per share, primarily at our high-long projects, but also include expenditures at other projects in our development pipeline. Starting mid-July of 2020, as a result of achieving certain milestones, Northland commenced the capitalization of our high-long development project in accordance with IFRS. In the nine months ended September 30th, Northland incurred $29 million of development expenditures related to Hailong, of which $16 million was expensed and the remainder was capitalized. These costs relate to site assessment work, including geotech and geophysical work studies, the hiring of personnel for the project, and other engineering work to advance development of the project. With respect to our liquidity, Northland remains in a very strong liquidity position, and our recently reintroduced dividend reinvestment program is expected to supplement the funding of select growth initiatives that are continuing to progress. Thus far, we are seeing good 28% participation in our DRIP, which, if remains stable, would generate approximately $60 million on an annualized basis to support our growth initiatives. Turning to our 2020 outlook, I want to make a couple of comments and provide some details on our adjusted EBITDA and free cash flow per share guidance, which is highlighted in our quarterly press release. Our 2020 expectation for adjusted EBITDA remains unchanged, and we continue to forecast achieving between $1.1 billion and $1.2 billion in adjusted EBITDA this year, which speaks to strong operating results, which more than offset the aforementioned lower offshore wind revenues realized as a result of COVID-19 and unusually high third-party grid outages affecting our German facilities. For free cash flow within our financial guidance released in February of 2020, our assumptions included optimizing the Deutsche Boot project by refinancing its $1.5 billion senior debt, including the deferral of a $38 million, 38 million euro scheduled debt uh, repayment, or 30 cents per share, due in the second half of 2020. COVID-19 adversely affected lending markets, and as a result, we opted to change our financing optimization strategy for the project. Taking advantage of an improving lending market, the refinancing of the debt is now expected to be completed in 2021. Consequently, the project's future cash flows from 2021 onwards through to maturity of the loan are now expected to improve in lieu of a large upfront one-time deferral. The non-deferral of Deutsche Boot's debt repayment in December 2020 will reduce free cash flow by approximately $0.30 per share for the year, of which $0.15 has already been deducted in the third quarter. As a reminder, under Northland's free cash flow definition, funds are set aside for scheduled principal repayments in order to allocate semi-annual repayments across the quarters to more clearly reflect the company's performance. In accordance with our decision, we have revised our free cash flow per share guidance to reflect the additional principal repayment, and our revised guidance for free cash flow is now expected to be in the range of $1.60 to $1.70 per share, compared to the previous range of $1.70 to $2.05 per share. Lastly, our balance sheet and available liquidity remain strong, with ample access to fund our development initiatives. At the end of the quarter, we had access to $704 million of cash and liquidity. This was an increase from $561 million available at the end of last quarter. With that, I will now turn the call back over to Mike for his concluding remarks. 
Thank you, Pauline. As always, our primary focus during these times is the health and safety of our employees and all stakeholders. We also feel a great sense of responsibility, as I've said before, to continue delivering electricity under our long-term offtake agreements and concessions. Looking ahead, we continue to see significant growth opportunities with the renewable energy space as a global decarbonization trend gains momentum. Northland aims to be at the forefront of this movement, and our strategy continues to be on making the investments necessary to position ourselves to capitalize on these opportunities. Our growth strategy centers on developing our pipeline of offshore wind projects in Europe and Asia, which will provide significant growth to the company and substantially grow our cash flows in the years to come. Finally, I'm pleased to announce that Rachel Stevenson will be joining Northland as our Chief People Officer, effective January 1, 2021. Rachel brings to Northland more than 15 years of leadership in human resources, including extensive experience leading human resource strategies and functions for national and global organizations across multiple sectors and technologies, including renewable power, covering North America, Europe, and Latin America. Rachel will play a key role in helping us build a culture that attracts, retains, and develops high-performance talent to deliver on our global growth objectives, and she will be a great addition to our executive team. That concludes our prepared remarks. We'd now be happy to take your questions. Operator, please open the line. Thank you, and as a reminder, if you would like to register a question, press star 1 on your telephone. And your first question is from David Quazat of Raymond James. Thanks. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, my first uh, question here, um, when you when you look to fill out that that uh, one gigawatt plus portfolio in the northeastern U.S., I'm curious, uh, I guess, a couple things. What Which states um, particularly uh, do you find attractive uh, outside of New York, if any? And um, maybe if you could just uh, briefly comment on, um, I guess, the motivation for moving into onshore and how it compares I guess in terms of returns uh, to offshore wind in the state, is that is that primarily uh, a, t a timing issue, like the fact that onshore is, I guess, more more near term? Is that is that the primary motivation? Yeah, I mean, a couple a couple of points on that. Uh, certainly, onshore wind and solar. Uh, uh, as a developer, we can convert a project more quickly into cash flow, right? You can work, work through your development milestones and into construction and into operation more quickly than for offshore wind. So that certainly is one advantage in terms of kind of balancing out uh, our, our cash flow. The, 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 in terms of the markets, New York uh, is, is particularly attractive in so far as they've got a very aggressive, as I referred to in my prepared remarks, very aggressive renewable energy target. Uh, and uh, uh, they also um, are now offering what's equivalent to a 20-year off-take agreement or 20-year PPA through what they're calling an IREC uh, to help kind of further stimulate and encourage the development of offshore wind. And those, as you know, are very rare and hard to come by now in onshore renewables. So that's what we like about New York. Uh, the, we, we've also looked at opportunities uh, in uh, New England as well, uh, where we see uh, uh, you know, similar uh, uh, opportunities more with utility offtake. Uh, we have looked at some opportunities in PJM, and that's more more opportunity specific, and, and in particular understanding uh, either the utility or CNI offtake and the, and the credit quality and the tenor of that offtake. So it's a bit more granular. Otherwise, the, the team uh, that uh, you know that David leads, and I'll turn it over to him actually, is uh, 
also looking at opportunities in, on the West Coast in, in California and uh, Washington, Oregon. But uh, David, uh, I've just kind of answered your question and answered it for you, but do you have anything else yeah, to add? Not at all, Mike. No, I think you covered it did very well. And I think, David, the, the thing to say is it, it's targeted. Uh, the U.S. market is obviously extremely large. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, locations which are very crowded, so um, the team is very focused on those markets, which Mike just mentioned, I think, particularly New York, and we see the, the opportunity and already seeing some early-stage uh, uh, development opportunities that uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk about in through 2021 to, to work towards that one gigawatt term. Pipeline. So, no, nothing else to add in terms to, Mark, to Mike's uh, comments. And returns. I mean, returns would probably be a, a, a bit lower than for offshore wind, uh, but with a, a shorter as a, a, a timeline to uh, to getting those projects into operation. Uh, similar opportunities uh, for sell downs to, to augment our returns, but you typically would have to kind of aggregate a number of projects. Uh, to, to, to really have an effective sell-down strategy on, on uh, onshore, whereas an offshore, you could actually just do it on one single project. Excellent. That's, that's great, caller. Thank you for that. And then maybe just one, for, one more for me. Um, on the refinancing for DBU, I'm just curious if, uh, if financing conditions um, or the potential there has, has improved, I guess, similar to what it was pre-pandemic, and, and will you be able to get that uh, optimization done on the, on the terms that you expected um, back in February? Um, thanks for your question. Uh, so to, to, to answer it uh, simply, yes, uh, to the financing, um, the markets have improved, spreads have improved. They are not at pre-COVID levels, but they are at levels that make it accretive to the value of the project for us to pursue this financing in 2021. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, I'll get back in the queue. Thank you. Your next question is from Nelson Ng of RBC Capital Markets. Great, thanks. Uh, first question relates to the acquisition of the uh, onshore wind developments in New York State. Uh, I was just wondering whether the, the $5.6 million purchase price is an upfront payment or is it the total amount to the seller regardless uh, of the outcome. I'm just wondering if there's like earnouts and milestone payments payable as well. Uh, David, do you want to break that down for, for Nelson? Yeah, Nelson, we um, we structured them in a, um, uh, I, I guess, a couple of tiers, some of them uh, a portion of upfront, uh, but also some uh, linked to um, uh, financial close and uh, milestones coming into the projects. So um, I think in a favorable way for us to, obviously we were taking on development risk, the projects that still have uh, the, that development risk built in, uh, we're comfortable about managing that, uh, but obviously we're sensible to profile the payments um, accordingly. So, so that 5.6 is the upfront amount? Is that right or is that spread over time? Uh, yes. yes. I, I think, yes. Okay, the 5.6 is spread over time, right? Or, no, the the five point so, six has been funded no, that, during the quarter. That's right. Okay, so that's the upfront, and then a base, and then there could be earnout payments and milestone payments for like afterwards. Correct. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yeah. There's a, yes. Okay. Payment uh, uh, milestones about an FC is achieved. Okay, and then from a timeline perspective, um, like how soon would those projects be ready to kind of get bid into? Uh, future RFPs. 
they've, um, uh, interesting situation. It's a moving situation, and we'll, we'll know more in um, in literally a couple of days' time. So, as, as Mike indicated, the projects uh, already had um, uh, MEC contracts that had been secured previously. Um, but what uh, what New York is now moving through is the conversion of those uh, REC contracts to what they're calling IREC contracts. Um, so the concept that you refer to there is bidding in, uh, subject to what we understand will be announced uh, literally, um, uh, we hope, later this month, uh, will not be a process of rebidding in. It will be a conversion of those contracts that we have into the new IREC contracts. Uh, exact details, we'll, I say, we'll, we will know um, in a couple of weeks' time. Okay. So Nelson, we, we, when yeah. we began looking at these projects, we were looking at them with a REC, which would just cover the, the renewable attributes and the revenue stream for that, and then we would have to market uh, the, uh, the brown energy, right, from the projects, which is how the market had been structured in New York. As uh, discussions moved forward and as we moved forward negotiating the, the agreement to, get, to acquire these projects, uh, the state of New York changed their position and uh, moved towards the, started moving towards this IREC, which had been rumored, uh, which, which, assuming everything works out as, as we expect, would, would allow these projects to convert uh, to what is effectively a 20-year PPA. So we're keeping a close eye on uh, developments in the coming days, as David referred to, but uh, uh, it's, you know, I think it's one of those opportunities where uh, with development, there's so many things you can control, and you manage those, and there's some things that are out of your control, and sometimes they go in your favor, sometimes they go against you, and this, this uh, hopefully, we'll see, uh, should be a favorable development on those three projects. Sir, so just to clarify, so one of those projects have a REC contract, and it might simply be a conversion into an IREC contract, where that project might not need to get bid into a, a process. It's a simple conversion. Is that... Yes, three of those projects are in that situation. Yes, three of those projects have a REC that we hope will be able to convert into an IREC, which would mean that they would not have to bid into an auction. Oh, I see. Okay, that makes sense. And then um, just moving over to the offshore wind side, like obviously there has been a lot of activity in uh, Eastern Europe. I know you've talked about Eastern Europe in the past. Uh, um, are you able to give any comment or any color on uh, your activities in, in Poland and like potentially partnering with, uh, with any uh, local developers as you've done in, in other regions? All we can say is uh, that uh, Baltic offshore wind in general, but both Poland and also the, the three Baltic states, uh, we think offer some, some good opportunities moving forward. And they're the, each one of those countries, with Poland obviously being the, the biggest and the most aggressive, are you know taking steps to to really stimulate offshore wind and encourage offshore wind and it's uh it's it's a market of interest but we don't have anything uh, at this point beyond that to to say okay and then just one last question um in terms of undertaking the O&M activities at North Sea 1 uh, are you expected to make any like cost savings by taking it by, by self-performing, and are you also taking on any uh, incremental risk? I would say uh, there, there's some modest uh, cost savings. I wouldn't describe them as being particularly material. We view it more as an opportunity to uh, understand better about the operations of the project and the costs involved so that when it comes off a contract in 2027, 
uh, we're better able to right-size the, uh, the OPEX to what would be uh, the new revenue uh, opportunities at that point. Okay, and I presume the risk is quite incremental as well? Yeah, but the, the, the risks, uh, I would say, uh, without going into the detail on it, that there's, there's not a, a significant amount of incremental risk the way we structured it, which is why there's not a, a, a significant amount of incremental revenue on it to, to, to Northland. Uh, it's, uh, uh, the objective was, uh, as I described, so we weren't looking to kind of extract a huge amount of uh, additional revenue from the project, but more to, as I said, to prepare ourselves for a post-contract environment on that project, which is what comes up first, but also, you know, Gemini follows in the, uh, the early 2030s, and uh, uh, so we want to be prepared for, for that as well in Deutsche Buch soon after that. All right. Thanks, Mike. I'll get back into queue. Thank you. Your next question is from Rupert Murr of National Bank. Uh, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Just a, a couple of uh, follow-up questions. So first, on, on the service agreement for Nord C1, what do you need to do to, to take on the operation and maintenance? Do you have any upfront uh, capex or uh, operating costs to, uh, to be able to start the, the service? And uh, do you need to hire very many people, or do you, do you have all that expertise in-house? Well, so we, we have been actually performing this for the last year, uh, so it, it initially, um, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, Nelson, to some extent, uh, strategy comes out of circumstance. So uh, what happened was, as you may recall, Sendvian, uh the turbine vendor, which had the, the service contract, uh, went into uh, uh, an insolvency procedure, and, and we had anticipated and seen the signs of this developing. Uh, so we uh, kind of started... Uh, tracking the, the team that they have that was, was executing on the, the service contract uh, in Germany. Uh, and when they uh, indeed went into, into their insolvency procedure and those people became available, we moved in very quickly uh, to, to hire them and to uh, enter into an interim SMA, which is what we were operating under, under the last year, uh, which is how we were able to uh, ensure that there was no interruption of, of service and that we were able to operate uh, the turbines at, I think, the same, actually, I think, slightly higher availability than under Senvian over the last year. So uh, what was essentially a, initially a defensive uh, uh, move to make sure that the, the, the project could continue operating at, at the same level of availability uh, opened up an opportunity for us to uh, step in for the long term. So the the way it worked with the lenders on the project is that the, they required uh, after that initial year for a, uh, a process, process to be undertaken to pick a long-term operator up to the end of the subsidy period in 2027. We submitted bids along with others uh, and our, our bid was, uh, was selected uh, by Nord C1. We were obviously recused from the decision. Uh, so our minority partner made the decision, the selection, and uh, and that's how we've come into this role. But we've we've essentially been performing it all along, and so we've we've got the same team that we uh, we hired uh, relatively quickly last fall, uh, and they've been performing uh, extremely well over the last year. So we're we're, we're uh, quite comfortable with that situation, uh, and th there's a, a good degree the the obligation on on uh, spare parts and uh, and. Uh, 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 maintenance capex still does rest with the uh, the project itself. 
So our, our right. obligations okay. are more related to uh, response times as opposed to uh, uh, much beyond that. Okay. All right. Great. And uh, follow up. Follow up on the um, the New York uh, developments. Are there any other development milestones you need to pass to stay on? Uh, I think it's a 2022 uh, a timeline, uh, or, or is it really just a matter of, of looking at for the, the contracts and the IREX at this point? Uh, well, David, do you want to do you want to answer Rupert on that? Yeah, uh, certainly. Yeah, Rupert, it, um, so we probably describe them as mid mid stage development projects when we uh, we took them over uh, earlier this year. Um, so there are still um, uh, I've called them the, the classic development risks to to work through. So there are still some permitting uh, items we need to close out, um, and, and then of course the whole procurement uh, um, cycle as well to go through on both uh, turbines and wider BOP. So that's a live. Uh, activity that's underway at the moment with, with pricing coming in um, and then combined with the offtake side of things we just talked about with the IREC conversion. Um, so those those are working through. There's, there's nothing that, that, that concerns me. Um, just classic development risks on, on onshore wind projects uh, moving towards that um, uh, financial close in the second half of next year. On the, on and the and are these, these projects eligible for 100% PTC? They, um, again, it gives you understand how the PTC works, so we're making sure uh, we are maximizing the ability to, to, uh, to use whatever PTC can be available. Uh, so if we can get hold of the relevant uh, equipment and qualify for PTC, we're doing that. Um, and I think, as you may know, as, um, the 80% PTC was extended as a result of the, uh, the COVID uh, actions earlier, earlier in the year. Uh, and so we're looking to see where we can extract that same value into the projects. Uh, to securing the right equipment. Great. Thanks for the color. I'll leave it there. Thanks, Rupert. Thank you. Your, your next question is from Sean Stewart of TD Securities. Thanks. Good morning. Um, question for, for Pauline, I suppose. Um, the, the North Battleford debt upsizing. Is, are there other opportunities across the rest of the, the portfolio from your perspective to free up more liquidity for, for growth going forward? Yes. Um, we are actively looking at a, a few opportunities uh, currently. Any context on scale or scope? Uh, not at this time. Uh, I think as we uh, move forward um, in, you know, with our investor day and uh, releasing guidance, we can provide some more details on, on some of the other financing optimizations that we're currently uh, pursuing. Okay, um, and I wanted to follow up on Lelucha. Uh, Mike, you mentioned you expect to have the, the contract structure in place when the asset starts COD um, in the coming months. Can you give us an idea of where you are right now with respect to, I don't know if it's percentage of generation that's contracted, what the average contract duration looks like, um, where are you in, in that process right now? We're expecting the, the tenor to be more, the, the negotiations are quite advanced to be in, in and around 10 years. Uh, and uh, and I think in terms of volume, it, uh, it's in the range of uh, 80 to 100% in that range. Okay. Um, that's all I have. The rest of my questions have been asked. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question is from Mark Jarvie of CIBC. Yeah, good, 
morning, everyone. Um, follow-up question on La Lucha. One is, how would the terms of the contracts and the offtake be relative to your going in assumption? And secondly, um, where do you guys stand in terms of putting some debt on that asset in terms of timing or quantum? Uh, could you repeat the first part? I just I didn't quite hear yeah, you. Yeah, so you said you'd be 80 to 90% contract, but I'm just curious in terms of pricing on, on the offtake in terms of how that has settled out relative to your expectations going into the project. Oh, yeah, yeah, in line with our expectations on the pricing. Uh, so in, in, li in line with how, uh, our, our FID uh, case or how we underwrote the investment. Uh, on that, and then on the, the financing? Yeah, the financing is currently in progress, and we would be targeting to, um, to close the financing in, in tandem. Okay, and then given uh, you know, you've made good progress on that, what, what's the appetite to do more solar capacity in Mexico in the next year or two? It's a good question. Um, so uh, as you know, kind of the uh, administration uh, in Mexico has become in the last year a bit more uh, protective of the CFE, the government-owned utility, and certainly Pemex the government-owned uh, oil and gas company, uh, and has taken some steps uh, that were designed to support CFE and support Pemex, uh, which uh, in our view and other generators' views uh, disadvantaged private generators in Mexico. Uh, we, along with others, pursued recourse through the courts, and uh, uh, in just about every situation, the courts supported uh, the position of the generators. And, uh, uh, and prevented the, the, the government action in, in just about every situation. Uh, so that's, you know, good, uh, but I would describe our posture on Mexico right now as uh, uh, somewhat cautious. Uh, we think in the medium term there's, there's great opportunities there. Uh, like I said on earlier calls, uh, we certainly watched the presidential election a few years, a couple of years ago, uh, but we also watched closely on the ratification of the USMCA, and that's what we think really drives the second, uh, the, the the free trade agreement re really drives, uh, will be continue to be a big driver of growth in, in Mexico in terms of industrial load, and then also in terms of a growing middle class and the uh, uh, increasing demand for power from the middle class. So. Macro speaking, medium, long term, we're, we're, we're big believers in Mexico and we think that they will need a lot of new power supply, uh, but we're just being careful what we do in the, in the near term until we can properly assess uh, what the government's posture is uh, with respect to private generators. Okay, that makes sense. And then um, just, just pivoting to you know, appetite or interest for M&A, you know, media reports linking you guys to some efforts and some processes. Just Curious where you guys are now in your thinking in terms of, the, you know, the, the key you know, tenets of, of, a, of an acquisition and whether or not it's entry to new markets, you know, adding development capabilities in the short term, or sort of where you guys are thinking in terms of what you guys would look for on, on any acquisitions right now. Yeah, I mean, we, we I mean, uh, I mean, similar to EBSA, we, we uh, there's a number of, uh, as with EBSA, we were interested in the Colombian market. Uh, for both transmission and generation, and we saw EBSA as a platform to be able to do that. Uh, and we're, as I think I've mentioned in earlier calls, the team's already looking at some solar projects and other renewable energy projects there in Colombia. So for other acquisitions, certainly an entry into uh, a market that, that we are interested in, and particularly if we feel that the, the asset can, in some form, 
be used as a bit of a platform for further growth. That would be uh, one uh, screen that we would put uh, M&A opportunities through. Um, I think uh, also looking at markets that we're already in to the extent that we can get uh, greater scale in some of those markets, that, that certainly is important uh, as well. So I think, uh, yeah, entry into new markets and, and the ability to scale up. Uh, and as, as we mentioned on prior calls, uh, we are uh, looking at kind of new areas for growth that uh, may be kind of relatively small in the near term, but we believe will grow over time, uh, such as in renewable fuels. And so uh, that certainly would be another area where we'd look at uh, be, rel be smaller scale uh, acquisitions, but to be able to find our, a foothold into, into that sector. But there's uh, yeah, nothing, nothing to... Uh, nothing in particular on that, but th those would be kind of three three highlights. I don't know if you'd add anything to that, Pauline. Okay. That's helpful, Mike. And then uh, last question for me, just in terms of Japan offshore, you guys already had the, the one joint venture. I think there's been prior conversations about trying to accelerate and looking at other consortiums. Any update on that or whether it's now or, or something that you guys think you'll be able to speak to at the investor day um, in January? Yeah, and not, nothing to announce today. I mean, uh, David's... Uh, uh Asian team is, is certainly looking at opportunities in, in, in Korea and Japan, uh, and uh, uh, we have an interest in, in – still an interest in Europe, uh, and there's some, you know, markets that are of interest there, but nothing nothing that we'd uh, – to, to, to announce at this point. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question is from Dan Than of DMO. Hi, thanks. Good morning. Um, Hi, Ben. Yeah, you, hey, good morning. You mentioned that you're planning to, to put out an ESG report in, into an investor day, so all looking forward to that. Um, you, you, you're really checking uh, the boxes on, on gender, uh, renewables, ramping that up. I'm wondering then with your gas fire portfolio, is there any uh, thought of, of launching a, a sale process? Gas portfolio to reduce scope one emissions or or should we view your your segment change to efficient gas uh, as a subtle message that uh, you're planning to hold on to those assets uh <laughs> you're you're reading a lot of tea leaves there but the uh no i wouldn't i wouldn't read too much into that uh, uh that change in uh in in label uh i'd say this we don't have any uh uh, plans on a, a sale process around the thermal assets at this point. Um, all of Northland's growth, planned growth going forward, is uh, uh, in renewable assets. Uh, I think we would also look, uh, as I've said before, at uh, a utility-type investment like uh, EBSA, uh, if it were uh, opening up a, as a platform for other uh, growth opportunities in renewables. So. That's kind of where we see our growth going forward. Um, uh, we're not uh, looking to invest any more capital in thermal generation going forward as well. Uh, and 
uh, yeah, and that I would leave it at that. Yeah, and the, the other reason for the name change was just in our conversations with global investors who, who don't necessarily understand, you know, the, um, the profile of these assets and that they displaced coal originally, um, you know, and uh, sort of getting marked in a category that, that we weren't. So we, we wanted to make that more clear in, in all our communications. And then with respect to ESG, you know, obviously um, ESG is more than our thermal assets. It's a lot about the renewable capacity that we want to um, develop over the next 10 years, uh, really focusing on, you know, the direction of this company, increasing renewables, uh, um, increasing um, capacity, lowering intensity, also covering, uh, you know, portions of the S that are, you know, become really important to our company and to um, the world, um, and in addition to a lot of G components, which have been um, addressed and are continuing to to improve. So it's it's really part of a holistic framework that we're we're working on and uh, hope to uh, discuss more about in in January. If we were to do anything on on our thermal assets, uh, it would only be done with uh, proper regard to. Uh, cash flow and the long-term sustainability of the company. So it's uh, it's a balanced uh, uh, decision that would would that we would have to take if we did anything. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then on uh, on Taiwan, then uh, what do we need to uh, pay attention to on on the supply chain? Um, uh, just getting those 14 megawatt turbines in. Is it is it port access you need? And what uh, what else that uh, we should be focused on? Yeah, I mean, David, do you want to pick that up? And I, I can jump in later, but... Yeah, Dan, do you, just to expand what you mean in terms of uh, focus on the supply chain, I mean, the, the most of the work on the supply chain now is um, uh, around finalizing the um, uh, the IRP, which is the localization, which I think I've, I've mentioned on prior calls, so that's both working with SGRE on, uh, uh, for the turbine, the 14 megawatt turbine, but also the wider, the wider supply chain around um, you know, all, all the other components for, uh, uh, for, for, for the wind farm. Um, so that, that's, that's where most of the work is, is in, but is that, is that what you meant by your question or maybe just expanding a little bit further? Yeah, that, that, that's true, and I'm more, I'm more wondering, um, and, and maybe my, my lack of ignorance, is there, will there be any issues of uh, procuring turbines, cables, uh, getting resources in, not, not because of COVID-19, but, but maybe because Taiwan maybe not as established as, as Europe? Yeah, no, it's, uh, good, good point. So I understand a bit more now. So it, it, obviously, we're not the first project in, in Taiwan. So obviously, the, the supply chain is starting to, uh, uh, to to be there. The service projects have gone before us, um, um, but um, but there is a need to to continue to build capacity. I think as we've reported, the um, uh, uh, SGRE are looking at establishing an, an nacelle factory uh, local in Taiwan, which obviously is there to provide themselves for their 14 megawatt turbine, which ours would be the first project uh, to do that. Um, and then from SGRE's perspective, that's also an export base for them more broadly across Asia. So yes, there are parts of that supply chain which, um, uh, which is in, the, in discussions and will be built in Taiwan to service the, the Highland project. All right, that's great, thank you. Thank you. Your next question is from Andrew Cusk of Credit Suisse. Thank you. Good morning. I think the question is for Mike, and it's really on Northland's positioning in the marketplace. And when we look at Northland, we see this duality where 
you are a large player in the offshore wind market, but there's a number of players that don't really have a horse in the race but have ample capital looking to get in. And then there's obviously a series of smaller players that really don't have capital but have some offshore rights. So how do you think about your positioning with that duality? It's a great question. So the um, – I mean, just starting off quickly on – I mean, on onshore renewables, we talked about that a bit earlier in the call. And on that, we're taking a very targeted uh, approach in in different markets where either we – uh, think we have an advent- advantageous position, or we can create an ad- advantageous position, uh, such as through through our, the, our utility platform in Colombia, recognizing that we are one of 100, 200 uh, players globally developing solar and developing onshore wind projects. Offshore wind, you correctly point out. Uh, I mean, Northland is is one of the you know amongst the top 10, number six, number seven. So a limited number of players uh, in offshore wind overall, and we're one of the uh, the top players in a sector that's set to take off, and that is attracting a lot of interest from uh, uh, investors, including, uh, you're probably alluding to, oil and gas majors and others that want to deploy capital into offshore wind. Uh, and so our, our big pivot in the last three years uh, was – moving from doing what we did on the first three projects in Europe where we acquired those projects pretty much within a year or so of financial close uh, to actually developing uh, projects and coming in right at inception in, in, in High Long and at early stages in some of these other projects that we're getting involved in now, uh, recognizing that the, the capital is no longer scarce for offshore wind projects. Uh, what's and, and that there's aggressive targets for offshore wind in a lot of these markets. And so what will be scarce is projects, uh, quality projects. And so that's where we're leveraging the team that we've pulled together over these last three projects that we've built in Europe uh, to develop projects for both our own capital uh, but and getting in early so that we are getting in before uh, you know an oil and gas major comes in to bid up the value of a site or something like that, or a lease, uh, uh, and also uh, so creating a, an investment opportunity for ourselves, uh, but also creating an opportunity to bring their capital into the project uh, on a sell-down as we create more value, as we move through the permitting milestones and towards uh, revenue contract and towards financial close. Um, so that, that's our approach to offshore wind, and, and key to it is, uh, is getting in early. And uh, and being able to and create and getting an early to establish uh, a foothold, and then also having the the requisite talent and and uh, skills uh, and to to build and or to develop a number of these projects across multiple uh, geographies. So that's uh, that's how I'd characterize it. Is that does that answer your question? It does. No, that that that's very useful color. And then maybe building upon just the, the scarcity and the competition for projects. You know, what issues do you see in the future on seabed rights? And, and I know there's broad latitude in a bunch of different markets, but you know, where your position now and prospectively in the future, how do you think about just seabed rights and how does that factor into that duality? Well, every market is different. So um, uh, the U.S. Northeast, which I think I've you know, alluded to earlier is in other calls, uh, there's going to be, you know, quite a bit of offshore wind built out in the U.S. Northeast, and it's a it's a, a great market for offshore wind uh, just because you can't cite a lot of onshore renewables in, in, in those states. And uh, 
uh, and there's relatively shallow water, so it's, it's, it's good for market in both those respects and a lot of load, a lot of demand. So, uh, but the challenge that we had is we kept looking at different opportunities in the U.S. Northeast is just the way the market was structured. We had a separate process uh, at the federal level, lease, uh, conducting auctions for leases, and then another process at the state level for power purchase agreements. Both very quickly became very competitive process, particularly for the leases. And uh, we saw values get bid way, way up beyond what uh, we would be comfortable paying for a lease uh, up front, and that's where we kind of made a decision that uh, the risk-reward uh, was not what we would feel comfortable with in the U.S. Northeast, and we focused on other markets where you can get in and secure a site uh, at a much lower cost, uh, and uh, that's where the markets that we've focused on. So, uh, yeah, so I mean, the, the, I'd, I'd say just in closing that the, the U.S. Northeast, in a way, was, was ideally suited for uh, these oil and gas majors to come in and, and bid up uh, these large leases that the U.S. federal government was putting up, uh, which uh, would put us at a disadvantage, and we focused on other markets where we can secure the sites ourselves, uh, develop them, and then look to bring in uh, those investors at a later stage as a partner on the projects. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question is from Najee Beydoun of Industrial Alliance. Hi, good morning. Just maybe uh, going back to Colombia, can you give us any more details on the uh, pipeline of, of opportunities you see there for uh, renewables, uh, either details on the scale of the timing uh, or of, of projects? Uh, the first few projects that we're looking at are, are relatively small scale, so it's solar, and we've, we've looked at a couple of hydro opportunities, but I haven't decided to move on them at this point, but they're smaller hydro, smaller scale hydro opportunities, but uh, that's where it's at. I think the, our, our first uh, step would likely be on a, a solar project, relatively small scale, uh, but we'd hope to build on that. Okay. Um, and just maybe a question on Taiwan. Just wondering how... Um, you're thinking about the upcoming, uh, I guess, tranches of, of round three uh, um, auctions. Just how are you thinking about positioning uh, yourself in, you know, to participate in those upcoming rounds? And what are some of the criteria for the bidders uh, uh, going into 2021 and, and some of the other uh, tranches as well? Yeah, I'll, I'll turn that over to David. I mean, there's certainly some advantages that we have uh, given our uh, success on the fit round and the auction round. Uh, but David, do you want to expand on that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, as Mike says, it um, with the position we've built in the market there, both the relationships into some, some of the key stakeholders, obviously, particularly on the government side, uh, and also the competence we have in the um, uh, the team on the ground, uh, we are actively looking at uh, participation in uh, in the round three, um, both uh, I think the 2022 and then the 2024. Uh, there's two auction rounds coming, so it also ties in quite nicely with the timing for, for I guess, for how long. Uh, going into um, to its FC and then people obviously becoming uh, available. Um, we're still we're still waiting for further detail. Um, I think the big one, and I always talk about this subject on on these calls, but the localization requirements uh, for um, uh, for the round three projects um, is still not fully understood, uh, and that's going to be imp really important criteria. Again, back to that supply chain conversation we had earlier, um, but also of course where your uh, localization does have a, an impact on costing. Um, and um, and hence you know, bidding bidding strategy and bidding pricing. So that's something that we're we're tracking through our relationships and um, uh, to, to fully understand, so we can understand how to position ourselves. 
and at a high level, the two two you know broad considerations are: on one hand, uh, there there could be some synergies from an operating and even perhaps a construction standpoint with our current sites, our current projects, uh, on the, which would make us more competitive. On the other hand. Uh, uh, everybody knows about Taiwan and offshore wind now. So where we were an early mover uh, several years ago, four years or five years ago, now uh, most of the offshore wind uh, developers are there. So we'd have to get comfortable that we're we're going to be able to be competitive uh, with whatever site we uh, we may choose to proceed with. Okay, that's that's helpful. But and, and just to clarify. So, so you won't be participating in the, I guess, smaller auction next year, but maybe per, you will participate in the bigger ones in two, two or three years down the line in Taiwan. Yes. Yeah, we're certainly looking at the twenty. Yeah, the twenty twenty two would be the first auction that we'd participate in. Okay. Okay, that's great. Uh, very helpful. Uh, thank you, and uh, just congratulations to Pauline on your uh, recent um, business best executive uh, recognition and award. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We'll hold our next call following the release of our fourth quarter and full year 2020 results in February. Uh, in the meantime, I'd like to thank you for your continued confidence and support, and also, uh, as I've been reminded, to, uh, <laughs> to gently remind everybody that it's Remembrance Day and that uh, those in the, east, in the Eastern time zone, that there'd be a moment of silence at uh, the top of the hour. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude the conference call for today. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.